Try that again. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, man. We're really glad you're here. Listen, they were sharing about the story, and, and I know maybe in second service, you're not even aware of this, the relationship and everything that's going on, but Josh had shared the story of, of Kevin and Mary getting kind of remarried coming up in December, and give a little bit of backstory, especially if you only come to second service. Uh, Kevin sits at the door every week in first service, and Kevin had a major injury a couple of years ago at work, which left him with all kind of short-term and mostly of his long-term memory has been lost entirely. And so even though he's married, he doesn't remember being married. And so throughout this whole journey, since he's been at Ridgepoint, he doesn't even know his wife's name, actually. But through Fight Club, and just he's really been growing and changing, and he's really trying to do the best. He said, he said to the guy who's his accountability partner, he said, I don't remember being married, so I think the best thing I could do is to remarry her. And so it's just this incredible thing. Nobody else knew it was coming, but at Fight Club's first graduation, nobody else knew it was coming, but Kevin rolled down, and for the first time in years, he referred to his wife by her first name. Like, she hadn't heard that from his, from his lips in years. And he came down front, called her up, said, Mary, would you come join me? And then right in front of the Fight Club graduation, he proposed to Mary uh, here right down in front of us. And it was such a powerful thing. And so this morning, they were kind of sharing. They said, would you mind announcing we're getting married? We want everyone to be there. So as a church, if you want to join them, again, it's a Tuesday night. We'll be kind of sharing information about that. But just this morning, they said, hey, would you mind sharing that information? And so since I know Second Service might not be aware of their story, it's a really neat story. But listen, we're really glad that you're here as we're wrapping up a series that we're calling Thanks Living. And we're going to get into that in a second. But before we do, I want to share a little bit of, of kind of my background in that when I was just graduating from high school and getting ready to get out into the real world, uh, I, I got my first real job. Now, I say first real job because I actually had a false start working at Waffle House for a couple of days. It was not a great first encounter in the workforce. But after that, I got a job working at Publix, and I, and I loved working for Publix, and worked for Publix for the next few years of my life as I went through college and all that stuff. And it was a great organization. I learned so much about business and so much about leadership principles. I loved working for Publix. But the thing I remember is, is early on, that first week I got hired, we went through the training, and they don't give you a lot of hours the first week. They're kind of observing and kind of seeing how you work. And, and I was young. I was 16 years old. And so I started kind of hanging out with the baggers, kind of getting my, feeling my way and figuring it out. And then it came to that first week that I got a paycheck. And I remember it wasn't a lot because I only worked a few hours that week. I think the paycheck was probably $115 or $120. But after I put $15 worth of gas in my 1985 Plymouth Sundance, I had $100 in my pocket. And as a 16-year-old with $100 in my pocket, I thought, man, I feel rich. That was the first and last time in my life that I ever felt rich. But, <laughs> but for that moment in my life, I felt rich. I felt like, man, I got $100, disposable income, no other bills. Like, this is cool. I actually have money. I don't have to go beg mom and dad for money. And, and, I, and I felt rich. I felt I appreciated the situation I was in, and, and I felt content with where I was at. Well, this series we've called Thanks Live, and we've been looking at these ideas. And we're drilling down deep in this idea that I don't want us just to talk about this topic because it's Thanksgiving and Christmas is around the corner, but that actually in our life, we're starting to develop characteristics in our life that reflect with the idea of what it means to actually live a thankful life, that, I, that I'm literally living as if Thanksgiving is every day of my life. I live appreciative, I live content, and ultimately, I live in a generous way. And so we've been looking throughout this, this study, looking at what, what it means and what, is it, what does it mean to really be generous and what does it mean to live that thankful life. And we began by having an appreciation for our past. If, if I'm going to live three ways, I'm going to live, first of all, I'm going to be appreciative. 
I'm going to look back and say, God, even though I probably want more out of life, really, if I look back at all the experiences and, and all the things that you brought in my life, you've been abundantly good to me. And I want to appreciate that out of my past. God, I want to be truly thankful for what you've done. When I look at my present, I want to be content. Josh did a great job knocking this out of the park last week and saying this is what it means to be content. Now, we had some interesting conversations throughout the week because when we're content in our life, it doesn't mean that we're complacent. Those words are very similar, but they're, they're different. I don't ever want to get to a spot where I'm complacent in my life, but complacency and content is, is very, very different. And so when I get to a spot where I'm, where I'm content, I want to look back and appreciate, I want to be here where I'm at, I want to be content, but I also want to learn how in my life I can, from this moment on looking forward, be genuinely generous in the way that I do life. And so to begin, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing uh, to a young pastor. He's writing to young Timothy. And he writes at the very end of his first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says for this. As for the rich in this present age, we'll get to that in a second. But he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I want us to get that at the very end, it says God richly provides for us. He gives us everything to enjoy. So to enjoy those things is not necessarily bad. But he says in the midst of God's giving you those things, and you're allowed to enjoy those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you enjoy those things, I want to charge you with something. And he's about to get into what that charge is. But he, said, but he begins this particular statement with this phrase, as for the rich. And I could say, well, outside of 16-year-old JJ feeling rich, that disqualifies me. Because if you're like me, I don't always feel rich. Unless I'm that 16-year-old having $100 in my pocket, that's not where I think I'm at. And so I think most of us, we think, well, that would just exempt us. Because Paul's obviously writing to people who are rich. And that's what I always thought until a few years ago. And my paradigm shifted a little bit. Uh, some of you are familiar with North Point Church up in Atlanta. We talk about them a lot. They're an awesome ministry. Andy Stanley, for my money, is the best communicator on the planet right now. And so we have a chance from time to time to kind of see, see some of those group studies and do some different things. Well, back when I was in youth ministry quite a few years ago, I had a chance to take a group of students up to a conference that was in the same city as where North Point is. And so we decided to go there for a Saturday conference, as a worship leading conference, and to stay Sunday morning and to go to church at North Point. I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. This is what I want to experience. And I walked in that particular Sunday morning, and then all this stuff up, they're kicking off a brand new series that actually is something they've replicated in years since. I don't think they do, they've done it every year until recently. But as far as I've been able to find out, we were there when they kicked off this series for the first time. And there's a series they called How to Be Rich. And first when I walked in, I thought, that's kind of weird. Like, I didn't expect that out of this style of church. Like, is this about, like, how to become rich? And Andy got up and said, this isn't about how to become rich. It's how to be rich for those who are already rich. And I thought, as a young youth pastor, Josh, you can identify, that's not me, man. I'm, I'm not rich. I'm, I'm a young youth pastor. I don't have a lot of money. And then Andy went into this whole lengthy, like, opening to this, this sermon. And he began by saying this. He began to say, hey, I have some friends that are rich. I don't feel rich, but I have some friends that are rich. And he said, rich people do some of the weirdest things. Like, for instance, rich people, will, they'll be in their home, they'll walk up to a refrigerator full of food, and they'll swing open the doors of the refrigerator, and they'll look in, and they'll say, 
There's nothing to eat. Some of y'all are rich too. I got you. <laughs> he says rich people open up the fridge and they look in and they're like, man, a fridge full of food. There's nothing to eat. So they close the door. Now the truth is there's food in there that they could eat, but they don't want to take the time to prepare the food themselves. So he said, there's something that, that rich people know about that the rest of the world doesn't know about. But there are these buildings you can go to that have a bunch of food in them. And not only do they have food in them, but they have people there because you don't want to take time actually preparing the food. So they have people there that prepare the food for you. And because they're busy and because rich people don't want to walk to the kitchen to get their food, there's another person that they hire to actually carry their food out to the table. And every time they want a refill on their drink, it's free refills. And he went on, he, on, on his whole long teaching and he said, it's the craziest thing. They eat all this food and they eat too much and, and eventually they still have food left over. And they take the food and they put it in a doggy bag and they take it home and they put it in the fridge. So tomorrow they can wake up and get ready for lunch and open up the fridge and say, once again, I have nothing to eat. And he said, and because these people ate too much food, they said, I got to start to work some of this weight off. I've gained a little bit of weight. And so especially now they're located in Atlanta where there's a lot of high-rise apartment buildings and stuff. And so he said, here's what rich people do is is they live in this high-rise apartment building and and they, they get up early in the morning and they hit the elevator and they go down all the way to the bottom floor to go pay at a, for, for gym membership at a gym and go to the gym to climb on a stair stepper at the gym so they can drive back to their house and hit the elevator to go to the top floor because rich people don't climb stairs. And so they're paying to ride a stair stepper, but they're not walking the stairs to their house, and that's kind of how they do their life. And he's talking. He went on and on about this. And after a while, I said, you know what? Probably most of us can identify because that might not exactly be our story, but there are probably some parallels. And then we hear numbers like if, if you make over $50,000 a year, you're in the richest 1% of people in the world. The richest 1%. And so it changes our paradigm when we read Paul writing to this young pastor. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, as for the rich. Now maybe we don't feel rich and I understand that we play the comparison game and I get that. Our numbers in our country are vastly different. But when he's writing about this idea of, of how to be generous, he's saying, but as for the rich, as for the rich in this present age, here's what I teach them. I charge them, do not be haughty. Do not think yourselves as better than everybody else. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He says, don't set yourself on the uncertainty of things that are here And that are gone because they're fleeting. As much as we can get excited about those things. And listen, as Americans, we're the best. We're the best at this. We get excited about things that really in eternity don't matter all that much. And I don't think there's anything wrong with getting excited about them. As long as we don't put our trust in them because they're fleeting. I say that because most of you know that I'm a huge, huge Florida Gator fan. Like I love the Gators and everything about Florida football. And and this past weekend they had a major game yesterday. And they had a goal line stand to win the SEC East Championship, and we're all excited. Everybody in Gator World is all going crazy. But then we realize that next week it's Florida State, and the following week it's Alabama. And we might not feel so good after that gauntlet we're going to run through. These things come, and, and, and they go. And if we get too excited, and we wrap our identity up in those things, then we put our trust in things that are fleeting. So he says, those who are doing well, those who are rich in this present age, do not be haughty. Don't put your hopes in the uncertainty of those things, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
We put our faith, we put our confidence in God because the Gator football is going to fail us and our finances are going to fail us and, and, and even some of our key relationships at some point are going to fail us. But we put our trust in God who never fails us. And he says, once you have that understanding, once you understand how, how we're supposed to be in this charge, he says, now here's what you do. They are in verse, 17, or verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. Four things. We're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and be ready to share. All of those hit at the topic of, of generosity. So I want to focus on that third one. We're to do good or to be we're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous. So why do we be generous? Why is that an essential part? Obviously, we look at the idea that God sets the standard of what generosity is all about. But why is generosity so important? And I want to say this at the outset of what we're going to talk about today. If you think, oh, this is going to be a, a talk about finances or money, that's not it at all. In fact, if we look at the assets that we have that are fleeting, that are, that are temporary, uh, money is definitely one of them. We want to be careful about how we spend our money. But time is just as important, if not more important. I would make the argument today that if, if I were to go and I were to just to, to stop and, and get gas and someone, someone came up and said, hey, can I get $5 for for some gas. I could give away $5 and, and maybe some of us start to wonder, well, is that really going towards gas or whatever? But that's not for us to judge. And so I give it away because I know I can always replace that $5. But I can't always replace time that's given away. And so I hope by the end of the message to give a powerful example of what generosity looks like in a very meaningful, timely situation that's currently happening today. So we're going to talk a lot about this, about time, about finances, about all those things, but to realize that generosity is a much bigger picture. We're trying to drill down to the heart of what a generous person looks like. So with that being said, I ask the question, why are we to be generous? And if you're a note taker, write down these four things about why we are being generous. Number one is because God commands us to. Why am I generous? Because God commands us to. The scripture that we're looking at right here says, here's what you're supposed to do. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, and be ready to share. Now, the truth was, if that's all that it was, if that's all that we had was a biblical mandate to be generous, for you and I, if we're trying to follow Jesus, that's all that it should take. But God says, not only is it a biblical mandate, but it's the way that I set the example for the world to follow. Because if, if our time and our money are our fleeting resources, God said, listen, the most important thing in my life was my son. And I'm going to send my son as a symbol of generosity to this world to give us hope, to give us our identity ultimately as followers of his. Is I'm going to give what's most precious to me so that you can see and ultimately have salvation through him, but that also you can learn that this is what generosity is truly about, me giving up my most precious resource so that we can have a future. That's what God says to us. And so he's trying to teach us this idea of being generous, and the truth was if that's all that you and I have is this biblical mandate, that alone would be enough. If, if God said go do it, we should just go and do it. However, when God gives us, especially when God gives us general principles, not so much when God calls you to do something very specific, because there's been times God has called you, and there's times God has called me, and he calls us to do something that doesn't seem to make sense at all, and that's where faith plays a part. But when God gives these general principles, it normally is, it's a paradox sometimes, but we see the benefit very early on when we follow that general principle. And I want us to see this because when we start to identify, okay, God, do you want me to be generous? 
then how does that benefit, not, not that we're doing it for our benefit, but how is this good for me? How, why, why outside of it just being a mandate? Why is this a good thing for me? And there's three things we've identified. Number two for us is this. Because by being generous, I have a chance to help others. Like right now, today. By me being generous, I have a chance to impact people's lives simply because God offers this opportunity for me, and to, to, for me to go and help others right now. Like immediately I can bring some level of, of, of satisfaction to their life, some level of reprieve to their life. This past week I was, I was overjoyed to see we were kind of hanging out at, at Chick-fil-A on Tuesday. And there's a local radio station that had taken upon themselves for the last several years to collect turkeys for people that don't have turkeys for Thanksgiving, and they distribute them locally, and they're gathering all over their listening audience, which is Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. But in particular, right here in Winter Haven, they chose Chick-fil-A in, in Winter Haven to say, we want to come and collect turkeys. And there are people lined up for a couple of hours bringing in turkeys and bringing in money to buy turkeys. And, and in, in, in just two hours, they raised enough money or they brought in enough turkeys to have 400 turkeys distributed or given to, through Winter Haven Chick-fil-A to the mission here uh, in downtown Winter Haven to be able to help people out with their Thanksgiving dinner. And so say, man, that was a chance right away to alleviate a need and to be able to help out in a very significant way. This coming Thursday, I already some people helping out preparing for the Thanksgiving outreach. And this coming Wednesday, some people are going to be helping out opening up cans. And Thursday morning, some of the guys from our church will be there at, at 4 a.m. opening. Well, the cans will be open up, but they'll be getting everything prepped to cook and get everything ready to go. And the thing is that everybody has a different job. In fact, the, the guys who typically have met for the last several years at, at 4 a.m., by the time it gets around to 9 a.m., we're, we're done, we're toast. We don't get to see the food distributed. We don't get to see the families that, that are overjoyed to see that food. But we all play a part to say, I want to be able to right away, immediately, be able to help someone out. And the thing that happens for you and I is when we do that, like we know that, that right inside of, of the hope of this found in Scripture, we have the hope this world needs, a hope that, 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 is, that is lost on so many right now. And, and they don't necessarily want to hear what we have to say, but when we start to show love in a very practical way, we're earning the right in their life to start to be heard. And some of you have invested in neighbors and invested in family members over and over and over. And, and, and I know sometimes it gets frustrating and, and you're like, I'm tired, I've been trying this for so long. We stay consistent at some point because of our alleviating a temporary suffering, we're able to share the good news, the hope that helps them out for eternity. And so I do this because by being generous, I can help meet someone's need right away. Thirdly, and this one's kind of tricky, but the third one is this, by being generous, I make myself healthier and happier. When I become generous in my life, I make myself healthier and I make myself happier. There was a study done a few years ago, and there's a book that came out because of the study. The book was called The Paradox of Generosity. And there are two sociologists. They weren't Christian sociologists. They're just sociologists that said, we want to go and to study the habits of people who, who are more generous versus the habits of people who are less generous. And they started to just watch and observe and ask questions. And they interviewed these 2,000 people, some of which are identified as being very generous, and some weren't. They said, we want to look at the people that are generous against the people that aren't in two specific areas. The amount of time that they're donating to volunteer in specific areas, and also the amount of money they contribute towards specific need that's out in the community. And they found this. This was a staggering study. But the, book's obviously, the book is obviously called The Paradox of Generosity. 
how it flies in the face of everything we've believed in modern culture. In surveying these 2,000 people, the people who describe their lives as happy, on average, volunteered 5.8 hours a week, so almost six hours a week. People who said, man, my life is really good, I'm happy, they volunteer at the pace of six hours a week. Where the person who says their life is unhappy volunteered right about a half hour a week on average. In addition, when it came to giving, people who gave away more than 10% of their income, or 10% of their income or more, 41% of them said they never had any sort of depression or they didn't identify with being depressed, whereas for everybody else, the number was lowered. It was down at 32%. But the most interesting part of this study was this. By asking the questions they asked, they were able to figure out that there is not only a correlation between generosity and happiness, but there is a causation. What that means is it wasn't just, well, yeah, obviously people who are more naturally giving tend to be happier people. They said, no, actually it didn't matter who the person was. When they looked at all the numbers, they said it didn't matter who the person was. We could say unequivocally that the more a person gave, the happier they became. The more a person served the healthier they became because their life became more than just about themselves. And so not only was there a correlation between the two, which would have been powerful enough, but they said there was actually a causation. The more that you volunteered, the more that you gave, the happier and the healthier you were. So when we give, though it's not our purpose, you know, we don't start giving as, as the offering buckets are being passed. We're like, yes, I want to make myself healthier. Like that, that's not why we give. That'd be awesome if it worked that way. <laughs> Forget the number of health insurance going up. Let's keep giving. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. But there is a causation between the amount I give and the amount that I serve and the joy that I experience and even the health I experience because I'm living outside of this. I'm living in a spot where, man, my joy is not going to be contained by, by the size of my wallet or the size of my purse. My joy is not going to be contained based upon how much I can live for myself. So there's this causation between the two that ultimately they summed up, being generous actually makes you happier and healthier just by being generous. Number four, verse 19, which we haven't gotten to, says this. It's taught us to be, to be good, to be rich in good works, all that stuff. Then it says this, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says, here's what we're doing. We're trying to to take hold of that which is truly life. And when we do that, we store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for our future. Number four, because by being generous, I am investing in my future. By being generous, again, it's not why we do it. But when I'm generous, I'm investing in my future. Now, here in 1 Timothy, Paul writing is actually talking about eternity, and eternity is in mind, and that's absolutely true. But similarly, over in the book of Proverbs, I have the absolute privilege on a pretty frequent basis to be able to share with couples as they're going through the premarital process and be able to go through counseling with them. And as we talk about the first week, we talk, the first time we meet, we talk about uh, faith and foundations. But the second time we meet, we talk about finances. We talk about budgeting and what that looks like. And at some point as we share, I get to share this verse over in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. In Proverbs 11, verse 24, it says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 
Now, again, the paradox of generosity said this is true, even though it doesn't seem to fit in our culture. The person who gives grows all the richer, another withholds what he gives and only suffers want. And I said this is paradox. And as I counsel couples, I especially uh, love the freedom of counseling a couple maybe that doesn't go to Ridgepoint because I talk to them about giving. And I say, listen, when we give ourselves away, God has a way of blessing that that is indescribable. And when I can talk to them, when I have nothing to gain from it, I say, man, when you give, whether it's through church, whether it's through uh, some sort of community project, or whether it's just personal giving, when, when we give, we learn how to handle our finances better and to deal with all of that. And God in some way honors that. To the point where I can say this, I've never met a person who's a giver, a genuine giver who's ever been poor. Now, the book would say it's not just a correlation thing, it's a causation thing, that one is causing the other. And I'm sure you and I can identify people in our lives that, man, it seemed like they were so generous, and they're just so, man, they just had a heart overflowing with generosity, and it always seemed like they had more to give. And the paradox is that shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. The more I give, the less I have to be able to give away. But I've seen people, and the more that they give, the more God gives them opportunities to be able to give. And there was this causation to the two. And so by being generous, I am investing in my future both now and in eternity. Once I realize that, I've, that I have much, that realization comes with responsibility because this, we receive extravagantly to give generously. You and I receive extravagantly to give generously. We've been given so much. And so when I look back at 16 years old, and I see 16-year-old JJ bagging groceries and, 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 and getting to, to know the other workers there, what happened in a short amount of time was the guys who were just appreciative of, of, of the job and, and the work became malcontents, and they weren't satisfied anymore, and they're always complaining for more, and they were never going to be satisfied. But the moment we learn to appreciate what God's given us, to be content with where we're at, and to look towards a future, a future of being generous, God is starting to form our hearts to just be people of generosity. A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this series by talking about the idea of, of what it means to be appreciative. And I actually used a verse at the end of the book of Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews chapter, 11, or chapter 12, that says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. But if we continue along in that line, getting over to chapter 13, it says this. But how we should respond to being grateful. Let brotherly love continue. The way we treat each other, let that continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter where a person is. Act as if you're there with them. Suffer with them. Love the way that you're supposed to love. And then he gets to this teaching on marriage where he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. But then he says this, Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The teaching here, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, we're supposed to be content. We're supposed to use the resources God has given us so that we can learn how to give generously, so that I can learn to just be a generous person. And it isn't about what I have. 
It's about what I have to offer. It's about position of my heart, the condition of where I'm at. Even when I don't have much to offer, it's saying, God, here's, here's what I do have. And I want to give that to you. To serve, to love. So how do I give? Three things real quick. I got to go through these real quick because we're running out of time. How do I give? Number one, I give regularly. I give on a consistent basis. The study I cited earlier said we noticed a consistency between the amount of times people gave and, and the, the length of the joy that they had in their life. Uh, for instance, if, if someone was given a huge sum of money and they said, okay, I want to begin by giving away $1,000 all at once, but that's all I'm going to do. It produced a very short-lived, temporary joy in their life that was there and gone. They said it actually be better for that person's health and, and happiness to give on a consistent basis. To give, instead of giving $1,000 at once, to give $100 every week until they gave away that $1,000. And there was that direct causation between the two. We look at scripture, the Bible talks about how we should give on a regular basis. And, and we say, I understand that that's important. The Old Testament uses the word, the word tithe, and I want to give on a consistent basis uh, a portion of what, what you've blessed me with. And that's really, really essential that we give regularly. The second thing is that we give generously. Over and above what we give consistently. It's learning how to just be generous people. I had a chance, Brenda's down front here, and I had a chance to meet with Brenda on a, on a day, I think it was last week we met, and she started to share a little bit of the journey where God has her on. Uh, and, and she's been able to, to do some work in, in Lakeland and to be able to help out with just, there's a large homeless population down in downtown Lakeland, and, and, and she's aware of that. She's kind of walked through, and sometimes she said we're sleeping in trees, and so sometimes people aren't even aware of it. But she said, I want to do something, and she's been doing a tremendous work on her own, just kind of helping out. She had some contact there with Talbot House, and, and she provides these goodie bags full of stuff that the homeless population might need there. And she wanted to take it to her family group, uh, particularly this Christmas season as it's getting a little bit colder outside, and, and, and to, to say, hey, I want to I share this chance to bless this community. And, and so they were kind of taken on a, as a family group project. And then when she went to meet with the people at Talbot House and to talk to them about how many people are we talking about in total, if we did something like this where we provided some of those supplies along with blankets and whatnot, how many people would we, would we be talking about total, like, like 30 or 40? And they said, no, it would be like 200 to 500, I believe the number was what they said. 200 to 500, she said, that's, that's a lot of people for a family group to take care of. And so she came and talked and said, man, maybe this is something that some other groups would want to be a part of. And so some of you might have received a phone call from Brenda kind of sharing, here's the vision of what we want to be able to do and kind of tackle that as a group. The supplies you'd need for something like that are actually back at the back table back there. Uh, if, if you're a family group leader and hadn't heard about this, man, Brenda would love to share that vision with you. Uh, if you're not in a family group want to find out more, again, uh, we can come and share that information. But it's just a saying, man, if uh, above my regular, what I do on a consistent basis, how can I most serve our community in a way that's going to be supremely beneficial to them? It's giving and it's giving generously. It's looking for opportunities to serve when, when, when we see a problem and don't know how to fix it, so we just kind of wash our hands with it and say, that's, that's too bad but I don't know what to do, it's, it doesn't suffice. It's saying we have to get our hands dirty, we have to do something. And the third thing is you're supposed to give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word there for cheerful literally means hilarious. Like when we give, it's a hilarious thing. There's so much joy in what we do. Uh, the Greek word there is actually hilarion. We get the word hilarious. 
God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a person who when I give, it's a hilarious thing. Like, I love this so much, it makes me laugh. I also don't see that when we pass the offering buckets. I don't see anybody laughing. Just saying. Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of of your righteousness. That's what we've just been talking about. That he who gives is going to multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Why has God blessed us abundantly? So that we can give generously. God's given us way more than we ever deserve so that we can learn how to just be generous people. Being generous isn't about what we have, but what we have to offer. This story has been my favorite story this whole Thanksgiving season. The story was so big it started to go viral. You might have seen this. You might not have. But there's a story about a, a grandmother who's starting to make plans for Thanksgiving this week. And she sends out a text message to her entire family, letting them know, hey, here's when, here's when Thanksgiving is. I'm having Thanksgiving at my house, and, and I want to send out to my whole family. She sends out this group text message. Well, sometimes, you know, grandparents might not be the best at communication and using technology. And so grandma sends out this text message to a bunch of people. Well, someplace there's a random stranger, a young man, who gets a text message from grandma. And he looks, and he says, I don't recognize this number. My grandma doesn't exactly text message. So, so and she hadn't identified herself yet. He, she sends out this text message, says, Thanksgiving's at my house. So he texts back and says, who is this? And grandma replies back, it's your grandma. And he's thinking, my grandma doesn't text. And he's like, all right, grandma, send me a pic. Like, I'm going to figure out if this is really grandma, because he's really suspicious, suspicious at this point. So grandma, thinking she's texting her grandson, sends back a picture. It looks like this. She says, yes. Here I'm at work and sends a picture back to her grandson. The grandson looks at the picture. He responds with this. <laughs> You're not my grandma. <laughs> Literally, that's his words. But then with seven words, he changes the dialogue of what's taking place. And he says, can I still get a plate, though? Grandma responds, of course you can. That's what grandmas do. Feed everyone. The dude's friend saw this text message and said, the world needs this right now. Like we know with the the racial stuff that's going on and everyone being mad at everybody, like we need stories like this more and more. So dude's friend took some screenshots of it and started to post it. A news site started to pick up on this. And eventually they kept texting each other. And he's like, you know what? You're so generous, I, w- I want to meet you. And so they've already met prior to Thanksgiving. And she invited him to Thanksgiving dinner, and he's going to Thanksgiving dinner this year. And he said, I'm bringing a pumpkin pie. Why? Because that's what grandmas do. What about what we do? Not as grandmas, because a lot of us are not grandmas. But what do we do, what, what do, we do as followers of Jesus? People have a need. People have a genuine need. We can sit there and we can wring our hands and say, I wish I could do something. I don't know where to begin. And 
So I'm just going to go focus on what I can do over here. Well, when God lays something on our heart, just, just to be generous. Again, it's not about a specific season or a specific holiday. It's about God changing the condition of our heart. That you and I learn just to be aware of other people around us. To be generous, to be loving. Say, man, I want to do my very best. I believe that Jesus came here to earth, sacrificing his life for us. To provide a path to eternity, but also to provide an example for us. To truly be generous. Let's pray.